Insults have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So that's from Psalm 69. You know, if someone said, could you sum up the Old Testament in like just kind of a general way? Like one of the ways I'd say is the Old Testament is roughly 2,000 years of R&D on human suffering. Hmm. Like just research and development. We're just figuring out suffering. Yeah. Only the Old Testament culture could produce works like the psalm. Only these ancient Israelites could produce a work like Job. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great tradition that was highlighted to me by some dialogue that I did many years ago between Catholics and Jews. And my Jewish brothers and sisters brought forward this idea of the lament. Yeah. And I, I can't think of a better way to describe some aspects of the Old Testament as just Israel's lament. And for a Jew, depending on how observant you are, like that culture of lament just becomes so central to your identity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we we lose that in the Christian tradition, maybe for good reason, but also I think it helps with the uh, tragedy of life. Yeah. And before we delve into that, though, a pro tip I got from a friend once. She said that if you're experiencing any mild depression and you're looking for a pick-me-up from the Bible, do not read the Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few pick-me-ups, but yeah. <laughs> Some of the Psalms are like, have you forgotten your love forever, Lord? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us, listener. We love our listeners. This is 10,000 Places, and this is the show where a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister go into a room, and then from there, by the wings of Christ, go many, many other places. And despite my uh, jubilant manner, today's (laughs) topic is suffering. And you know about suffering, listener, because you know that I'm Alex Giltner, and I'm talking to your ear right now, so you're suffering. I'm Lewis Pearson. (laughs) I'm Justin Aquila. Now, this topic, it's not one from a listener, but we do have a place that people can email show topics, sponsorship yeah, if they're interested. Yeah, Justin, yeah, what is that? Yeah, if you uh, have any topic ideas or want to share any feedback on the show or interested in contributing, you can email us at 10,000placespodcast at gmail.com, and 10,000places is all, podcast is all spelled out. All right. No numbers, just letters. No numbers, all letters. It was Peter Kreeft was present in town for a men's diocesan conference years ago. And he said, this is what Job is about. I had heard a few other people talk about it. I was reading something and they were all telling me different things. I thought, I don't know who to believe here. And uh, shamefully, I'd never read the book of Job all the way through. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's amazing. So one day when I had no appointments, I had all my prep and grading done. I closed my office door and I just started reading it aloud. Mm. And let me tell you, if you don't read... Job aloud, or a lot of the scripture, you're going to miss the Jewish humor. Oh, yeah. yeah. When his wife says, are you serious? Are you still being this holy guy now? Curse God and And die. die. Like, like she's not being an atheist. Like, that's how people read it when you read it silently. No, she's being a really embittered wife who just lost her children, who's looking at her holier-than-thou husband. And you have God showing up at the end. Where were you when I made the creation? (laughs) You don't get this stuff when you don't read it out loud. Well, and I'll be honest. So people have argued. So Job is one of my 
favorite books of the Bible. And I love it. It's so amazing. And it's a work of just untold genius. And I do think that people, there are a lot of opinions out there, what it means and what it's about. And why didn't, why did Job get his commendation from God after he just got like completely destroyed by God's very sarcastic. It is really sarcastic. Hey, Job, where were you when I uh, spread the stars across the sky? Were you there? Oh, wait, no, you weren't. <laughs> oh, but you were there when I taught the gazelles how to like go up into the mountains to breed and stuff. Wait a second. No, that, that's right. You weren't. Come to think of it, I don't think you were anywhere <laughs> when I was creating the universe. Yeah. Are you going to try to submit me to a moral inquisition? But then after this big, long thing, and it's so great. But like, this God, Jewish frame, right? Satan's walking the earth. God's let him kill his entire family off. And God's being sarcastic to him. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's so great. Like when he shows up, oh, it gives me chills right now. Who is this that darkens wisdom with words without counsel? Gird up your loins, Job. Because like I'm going to talk like a man. Because I'm going to talk to you like a man. And it's not like, be a man, John Wayne. That was a terrible John Wayne impression. <laughs> But um, it's like, I'm going to talk to you like you're a man and I'm God. And this is what I want to tell my students, you know, when I hand out the test. Gird up your loins. You know, I actually think you told me this once, Lewis. I do, yeah. Uh, it's uh, my turn to question you. Actually, at, at, at exam review, before the exam, I will quote this and I say, it is my turn to question you. Yeah. Yeah. But here's my shot at what I think Job does. And it comes from the wife's line. Because Satan says, if you let me do this, he will curse you. And his wife gives him that first temptation. Why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, am I to accept from the Lord when he gives, but not when he takes away? His friends get a bad rap, okay? They, first, do. they do. They do. First of all, they didn't say nothing. Like everyone's like, they were trying to tell him. They were trying to fix it. They were trying. They sat with him for seven days in silence. That's friendship. Yeah, that is friendship. Okay? They sat with him in a desert for seven days without speaking a word. And eventually and, you want to do something for your friend. Right. right, and, right, right, and, right. and Job starts and, the conversation. And, and let, me, what, let me say, in, in the 21st century, generally, you uh, do not sit with your friend for seven days. You just start in on the- Oh, yeah. 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 And Job's the first one that speaks. They wait for him to speak. And Job says, first thing, curse the day I was born. <laughs> but then this is where the friends kind of go wrong. They kept saying, you know, like- Hey, Job, what'd you do? Like, you did something, Job. You deserve this. Job, what'd you do? Or they seem to take different texts. Like, some are like, well, yeah, Job, but, you know, like, don't talk that way. It'll be okay. God will bless the just. It seems like they, they take slightly different texts. They do, but the But then they start getting on his case. The way I read it, it seems they said, hold on, Job. Like, no, no, really. Yeah. Maybe there's a problem with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's clearly critiquing the... The philosophy of the day, which is that the rich are rich because they're good, the poor are poor because they're bad, and God only allows bad things to you happen to you when you consequence as, as you did something yeah. wrong. And so what Job does, because God's right, he says, I don't have to explain anything to you. But what Job does is he never curses God. He demands an audience with God. He says it's unfair. He says that I don't get it, but he never curses God. He never says that God is to blame. It is a meditation on the meaning of suffering and suffering that seems meaningless, right? But we've been a little jovial about it at the beginning. I think there are times you can bring it to people, but it's hard like when a person is suffering or when I am suffering 
it's not an easy, oh, here's, here's your magic pill. I just open up the book of Job, mm-hmm. right? On a practical level, the response to a person suffering and evil, just if your friend's suffering, if your spouse is suffering, if a loved one's suffering, is as a human being, we're, we're often not sure what are the right words to say, what are the right gestures mm-hmm. to communicate. One of my favorite stories is um, a Catholic writer, philosopher, novelist, Francois Marriac. For those of you who've ever read, had to read in high school, Elie Wiesel's Night, the count of Elie Wiesel's experience as a teenager in Auschwitz. And the story goes is that Elie Wiesel went to interview Francois Marriac as a young journalist after he survived the camp. And Marriac is you know, being interviewed by Wiesel, and somehow the conversation turns so that Marriac is then hearing and listening to Wiesel's story. Hmm. And one of the dynamics of Wiesel's story is that he, he no longer believes in God. There's a particular moment in night where he watches a Jewish, young Jewish boy hung between two other Jewish men. Um, and he said, in that moment, God died for him. And Mariak, of course, is reading, listening to the story and saying, the young Jewish boy in the middle is Christ, you know, hung between two others. But he said in that moment, he could only, he said he thought of the, Mariak did, he thought of all the answers the Christian faith provided to Wiesel's suffering. And he said, but I could only embrace him weeping. Yeah. And there was something just so powerful about that. Even we, I think, want to talk today a little bit about some of those answers, but fundamentally, sometimes it's the gesture that flows out of our understanding. Yeah. Of and because we aren't God. And we can't do that kind of comforting. And I remember one pastor telling me when he went into one of his churchgoers' hospital room, and before he said anything, she cried out to him, if one more person tells me that God works all things for the good of those who love him, I'm going to scream. Yeah. And he was like, you already are. But but so here's the thing I want to say about Job, too, is I do want to say as brilliant and genius as is, I don't think it's much comfort. Right. In the end, right. In the end, it doesn't offer you. Job never finds out why God allows this to happen right. to him. And if we can trust the book, we don't know why it happens either. God did agree to a bet with Satan, and people died. And he gets back all his stuff, but he doesn't get his family back. Yeah, you know they're dead. And so it makes the really good point that you have to trust the Creator. Because Clay can't say to the potter, why did you make me this way? There's, that's there. And that's brilliant, philosophically. But there is something unanswered in Job and his lament. And I think that the whole history of the Old Testament looks forward to this. And I really think it's found in this kernel in Job. Job says, this is in chapter 9, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by the skiffs of reed like an eagle swooping on the prey. So everything's just fleeting. Everything's going away. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad countenance and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor? If I wash myself with snow and if I cleanse my hands with lye, Yet will you plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. Joe's so brilliant. My own clothes will abhor me. But then here's it. Because he's saying, basically, I can't actually submit God to moral inquiry. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm always condemned before God because I'm a sinner. Job never says he's sinless. Right. Okay? He says he doesn't understand why this is happening to him. But then he says, and here's the reason. For he is not a man 
as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. The answer to Job is not found in Job. As is the answer to most questions posed by the Old Testament. Exactly. It's the fulfillment of Jesus. Now there is a mediator between God and man that can lay his hand on both, who can represent both sides, and who can, because no matter what my suffering, my complaint is never valid because I'm still a sinner. Yeah. But now I have something to say and can speak with boldness, as Hebrews says, because this mediator has made me right before the judge. Yeah, I, I've often thought, and I'd be happy for your perspectives or even pushback on this, that the Christian response to suffering is is not necessarily a, an argument, um, but an attitude. Uh, and the particular Pastorally. attitude— uh, I we think need in to general, have discussions about evil and stuff like yes, that. Yes, fair enough. Uh, but, but pastorally, yeah. But the attitude is hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think experientially when you're going through suffering, the grace of hope becomes – Pope Benedict speaks about this in Space Salve when he cites the example of St. Josephine Bakita and slavery, right? What is it that gets her through hope? We can see this in the work of Viktor Frankl where he recognizes mm-hmm. that those who survived the camps often – and it became his life's mission to – to find meaning and hope in mm-hmm. in those moments. And fundamentally, hope is the Christian virtue that knows that, or is confident rather in God's promise that even if I'm going through the depths of despair, that I've experienced grief and suffering and loss, or health issues, whatever it is, that in the end, the promise of the book of Revelation that every tear will be wiped away will come to fulfillment. So it's not necessarily a relief from the moment, I actually do think it goes deeper, though, than just that attitude of hope. I think that's there. I'm not contradicting you at all. But I think there's also something deeper in what hope draws us to, what faith and love draws to as well. And that's this crazy thing that, like, we're not supposed to just be like Jesus in the way that he lives. We are also like Jesus in the way that he dies. And so our suffering doesn't just take on... if. All we could say about our suffering, I think, is one day it'll be better, though. Then it still doesn't really explain it. Uh It just gives me something to live past Mm -hmm, it for. mm -hmm. And I remember in college when I first heard this, this statement from Paul, as I came to really start thinking theologically about the scriptures, just I did not even know what to do with this. And this is when you would have been a fledgling Christian, not yet Catholic. Yeah, Yeah, right. I was Protestant. I was learning the Bible. And it was things like this that I couldn't explain with Protestant theology that led me here. There's no doctrine of redemptive suffering that I've found, sure. but it's in Catholicism. And this verse really does it for me, where Paul says in Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Christ's sufferings, for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office, which was given to me for you, to make the word full of God fully known, the mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. So the mystery is Christ's sufferings. That's Paul's all about the Paschal mystery. The mystery is that 
the Christ, the Messiah. It is such a good exercise. Tom Wright talks about this. It's such a good exercise to replace every use of Christ in the New Testament with Messiah to remind us that that's what the word meant for them. Right. It was a title, yes, but the way we talk about Christ, right. they're saying Messiah Jesus, all for Messiah's sake. What is lacking in Messiah's suffering? And I remember it just blowing my mind up because like, wait a second, you can't say something's lacking in Jesus's sufferings. But what does he mean? He says he's making up what is lacking. And redemptive suffering, which not only gives us a reason to push past suffering, but gives us a way to understand our suffering is that it can participate in Christ's own sufferings. And in this way, because of his grace, not by any merit of our own, can help Christ complete the work of redemption that we participate in his sufferings. Of course, he's God of all of it. So it's not like he needs our help. Once again, he never needs anything from us, but he allows us to participate in his work, even the work of redemption but that we can participate and make up what is lacking. Yeah, that passage is one that continues to kind of stun me. And it's crazy. I, I'm really Even not as sure. I'm saying the things yeah, I'm yeah. saying and interpreting the passages I think only can be interpreted, I'm kind of like, ah, but it's there. Right. And I'm not sure what fully to do with it. But at the same time, there is something profound about the invitation there. There really is. And, you know, Christians have this phrase that used to drive me nuts, okay? And I've come to embrace it because of this doctrine, because of this passage. But man, did I ever get sick of hearing, offer it up, just offer it up, (laughs) just offer it up. It's like every time I heard that. And I think to someone who's maybe not in relationship with Jesus, it would be the worst thing to say. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But even as a Christian, I was like, offer it. What does that even mean? And then I realized through this passage that what we're offering up when we offer up our pain and our suffering, we are offering up on the altar of sacrifice our own participation in Christ's sufferings. Mm -hmm. That's what we're offering up, right? It has to be. Yeah. The way you put it, when you said, what can I do for Messiah, right? I think about when you see someone that you know is working and toiling and suffering for you, and everyone wants to contribute, our little thing. And that person lets you. Everyone feels like, thank you. Yes. There's a glory with all these different gifts being brought together, right? That I think it's not patronizing to say, this is the work God gave you. You know, people who think that there's some kind of Catholic doctrine that we have to suffer to be saved or something. No, we're not doing this to be saved. Though that work of salvation is done. We're participating in a work that's already completed. When you see like a kid trying to put away things when you get home from the grocery store and they don't know where things go and they just want to help though, right? You know, like it's kind of like that. Or as you put it, and I thought this was beautiful, being allowed to participate, you know? I think that attitude you talk about helps us to see how this meaning shows up everywhere. Typically, bring it together, Lewis. We see the meaning when we're willing to take the hit, right? When I think about the things I'm willing to do for my family, you know, the yard work or or whatever it might be, the things I'm willing to do for my students, and I think I'm going to take this hit, or just even small petty things like, no, I'm going to pay for dinner tonight, even though I can't really afford it, but I know you can't even, I'm going to do this. The way that people argue over the check, but the things you're willing to take the hit for, we get. It's the suffering that we're not willing to take the hit for. We didn't expect it. We don't 
We didn't see it coming. And because the expectation isn't there, because the frame isn't there, we can't discern the meaning. I think this is part of the- I get what you're saying. Yeah, part that's of the issue really interesting. Here. Yeah, and so I think, Justin, when you say that the Christian view of suffering is one of hope, it's helping us to establish for all suffering the kind of expectation we have for voluntary suffering when we know what's happening. Right. Yeah, when my bone, my jawbone was infected for four months of agony and then the infusions and the pick line and all that. It's like five surgeries you had. Yeah. It was the worst pain I've ever been through. And I've had like spinal surgery and stuff like that. But like it was, there was not, why am I doing this? Why is this happening? You know, what does this accomplish? You know, and knowing that in some way I'm becoming more like Jesus because I'm going through by his grace something like what he goes through in the cross and participate in that. And then can offer it as penance, not for my salvation, but for the reform of my soul and the reform of the souls of others. It gives me a hope that this is going to matter to someone someday. I like the way you put that. It's not that I have to suffer through it. It will matter. It will matter. This will do something. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that goes to our understanding of the church, which is that we're such a corporate body yeah. That what happens to me, right? That, you know, we rejoice in the things that the good that happens in others. We mourn with those who, who are mourning. Yeah. And so there's this overflowing of whatever happens in our life to the rest of the body. Yeah. This is why, you know, like people wonder why monks in cells doing asceticism. Peter Damien talks about this. And I think this is shot throughout the religious life is we're doing penance for the church. We're suffering to help the church. And it doesn't make much sense to our modern minds. And of course, it can get abused or go too far and become some kind of weird Dan Brown novel. <laughs> but uh, that's a reference from the aughts. Early yeah. <laughs> 2000s. Yeah. But, um, but like, there is this sense in which, yeah, they're not just doing the work for the completion of themselves. Right. They're doing the work for the completion of the church. Yeah. They're doing the work for the completion of Christ's redemption on the cross. Not because God can't handle completing all these things. He always could. But he always invites us for whatever reason. It doesn't always make sense to me. For whatever reason, he always invites us into his work to help him complete what he could clearly do without us. One of the interesting things about suffering that struck me is that sometimes distinguishing what suffering is for. So one of the first questions I always ask myself and others when they're, say, depressed is, do you have a reason to be? Right. So if you've lost a loved one, yeah. There's a certain kind there's of validity. There's a validity to the mourning that needs to take place in order for the subsequent healing to occur. And so if you weren't depressed when your father or grandfather died, I'd actually be really concerned, you know, because that's not the right emotional reaction. It's right. like, did you murder him? <laughs> but <laughs> and the same thing with like a lot of our pain is <laughs> pain is a response. It indicates that something's wrong in our bodies and our emotions sometimes act diagnostically as well. But they're also the source of suffering. And I'm not sure how to fully integrate that into what we're talking about, but just that it's always oriented toward healing. It is. And, but also, I think it's, it, you're right that it acts diagnostically. I think suffering, why is there suffering? Because of the fall, right? Yeah. The suffering lets us know that something's wrong with the world, but not that God's going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Even the answer to Israel is not, here's how I'm going to do it. It's just simply, I'm going to do it someday. And they all just have to kind of hope for it. Right. But we, have a different kind of hope. This is what Paul talks about, right? Because we can see 
the substance of our hope. Our hope is that Messiah has suffered and died. Yeah, we have the down payment, so to speak. Right, yeah, the, the yeah. first fruits. The first fruits, yeah. Right? The suffering of the emotive world and the relational world of losing a loved one is proper because something is really wrong. This is the inside of Tolkien, right? Sin is real. The you catastrophe is real. God had to die. It gets us a better ending. Yeah. But it is wrong. Yeah. And so our suffering is an indication that sin is real. This stuff was serious business. What you just said reminded me of a homily I just recently heard from a priest where he's pointing out that apostles huddled in the upper room. They didn't know what to do. Mm. They did not yet know the, the risen Christ afraid. And he said that Christ didn't come into the world to eliminate fear. He came in the world to conquer fear, to turn fear from a master into a servant. And it made me think of your point here that pain, suffering, sin are bad. Yeah. But God permits them so that he can turn even those into his servants. Yeah. I mean, that's the great, another great thesis of the Bible, what you meant for evil, God turned to good. That's what God's always doing. And so And Justin, this is a line that you've said to me that I think is great. Not a single one of our tears will be wasted. Mm. And you're not, I'm sure, not the first person to say that, but like I remember you saying that, like all of our sufferings now matter and they won't be wasted. There's nothing we've suffered that God did not have some way to make it good. Right. Because every evil he only permits, you know, Augustine talks about this, his infinite power is such that. No evil will be permitted if it cannot lead to a conclusion that was better than if it hadn't. Right, Otherwise, he right, wouldn't permit it. Right. And I want to just make this as we wrap up this distinction between, if you will, the types of suffering. So I think St. Ignatius is helpful, and he's really drawing out Augustine for this insight. St. Ignatius of Loyola distinguishes in the spiritual life those sufferings or desolations that are there because God does not want us to be stuck in sin. So Ignatius, for Ignatius says, if you're oriented, your life oriented toward God, your consolations will come from God, but desolations will come from the enemy. When your life is oriented away from God, as Augustine's was before his conversion, the consolations will come from the enemy, but desolations will come from God. That is really brilliant. Isn't it? Why? Because as Augustine points out and testifies in the confessions that- Testify. Testify. He says that every aspect- well, fundamentally, why would God leave me in sin? Why would he leave me happy and delighted in my life of sin? So, of course, he's going to be the desolating agent, right? right. The enemy wants to keep you in sin so he consoles. So, really, practically, sometimes, too, we can sometimes orient our life and think about are these consolations, especially in regards to maybe a spiritual or emotional suffering, and we can think about ourselves, is the Lord provoking me to repentance here? Mm. Uh, because he's not going to leave me in sin, it's just not his way. Yeah. Well, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us for this episode again. And we just encourage you to take your sufferings into prayer and into relationship with Jesus. Asking for Offer that, it up. Ask him for that grace of hope. And in so doing, as you bear your sufferings, you build up the body of Christ. Mm. And so make up what is lacking in Messiah's sufferings. Leave us with the words of Paul. Oh, man. This has been uh, this episode of 10,000 Places. This is Justin Aquila. This is Alex Giltner. And Lewis Pearson. I look forward to joining you next time.
This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.